podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. Now, it's common ground amongst both the scientists and the general public that the long-term weather patterns known as climate are changing. However, what is more fraught is why is that happening? And how do we actually survive according to Charles Darwin's principle of survival of the fittest? Alternatively, are we looking to change the definition of fitness so that the environment reverts to one that will support life as we currently know it? Now, our fitness as a human race has been based on our intelligence and therefore we've called our current geological age the Anthropocene Age, which in its translation means the new age of the human. Will our intelligence also be our Achilles heel? And in fact, will the Anthropocene Age potentially be the shortest age in geological history if we don't get it right? So the question is, will we be successful at adapting to the changing climatic environment as Darwin suggests we need to? Or alternatively, what are the chances we'll be successful at changing the climate to suit us? So in this episode, we'll be talking firstly to leading global environmental scientist, Professor Will Steffens, and he's going to give us some background about where we're going and where we've been in terms of surviving environmental change. In part two, I'm going to engage with the voice of optimism of the next generation, Young Farmer of the Year 2015 and agricultural scholar Anika Molesworth, as she inherits the current responsibilities of food production for the future. I'm then going to explore the Plan B options, whether we are putting enough resources into adapting to inevitable climate change if we're unsuccessful in actually changing the climate back. To do this, I'm going to talk to a member of the IPCC panel that were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 for first reporting the changes that we're seeing due to climate change, Professor Mark Howden. So first up, Professor Will Steffens. Welcome to AgriMinders, Will. Thanks, Chris. Will, you know, we hear so much stuff about climate change on the radio. We hear the commentators saying that it's a fabrication, it's the millennium bug of the 21st century, uh, and yet we hear the passion from people uh, about how concerned the younger generation in particular are about it. It's very hard. And the other thing that's confused all that is how unscientific a lot of the debate has been. You know, we castigate people who question, and that, in fact, just adds to their credibility and their passion as well. Why are we in such a mess with understanding this whole climate change uh, philosophy? First of all, it's a very, very big, complex uh, topic. So I think it's hard for people who are not uh, trained in, in science or how science works to actually follow a lot of the detailed scientific arguments, although some of the really core ideas, I think, are reasonably straightforward. I think the second thing is because it has such important implications 
for human societies, the way we organize ourselves, uh, the way our economies work, the way our technologies work, uh, that it does have profound implications for the future directions we take. So for those two reasons, I think it has obviously become a very important issue, but also one that is highly debated, particularly beyond the scientific community. I should add very quickly, there is no debate within the scientific community about the fundamentals of climate change. That's very well understood from a basic physics point of view. Well, that's true in terms of the fact we're seeing the climate changing, but there is definitely debate on, on the relative contributions of Anthropocene change, solar activity uh, and other things. No, actually there isn't, not in the scientific community. There may be a debate out there in the, uh, in the public, but in fact in the science community, uh, I would say well over 99% of the science, virtually everybody who studies this now understands that the primary cause by far uh, is the human emission of greenhouse gases, uh, primarily carbon dioxide and the main source of that. About 90% of our emissions of carbon dioxide uh, comes from fossil fuel combustion. As people who study agriculture know, methane and nitrous oxide are also important greenhouse gases, uh, and there agriculture is a, a fairly prominent contributor. So that part of the science is very fundamental. It's just basic physics. We know the properties of carbon dioxide gas. It's been known for two centuries. It was first measured in a laboratory back in the 1850s uh, by John Tyndall, a, a British uh, physicist. Uh, and so th this is not debated at all. We know that CO2 traps heat that comes out from the Earth's surface and warms the, uh, the lower atmosphere in the surface. That's been known for well over a century. This Paris Agreement is designed to prevent it. Can you just explain why two degrees is a sort of magic tipping point? Two degrees is a very, very big change in the climate. I think to put this in perspective, uh, we need to compare the last time uh, the Earth had a significantly different climate was the, was the last ice age. And most people understand what that was about. There was two kilometres of ice over northern Europe and, and central North America. Uh, woolly mammoths and, and so on uh, roamed around uh, the country. It was an extremely different climate. But that was uh, re resulted from a, a decrease compared to today of only four degrees in global average temperature. So a few degrees actually makes a huge difference in, in what the climate actually is and how it looks like. So two degrees is nothing to laugh at or, or sneeze at because, in fact, it's a very, very significant change in the climate system compared to the one that we humans have developed in over the last 10,000 years or so. And given that our, for example, use of fossil fuels uh, since 1998 is still almost identical as a percentage of the total power produced in the world at around 38%, um, what do you think our chances are of actually making a significant difference to that purely by policy in countries of reducing carbon emissions? Yeah, that's a critical question, Chris. And I, I think uh, in a lot of natural systems as well as human systems, you hit tipping points where systems change rather quickly. And so you get what we call nonlinear change. So you, you can't predict the future just by extrapolating the trends that you've seen the last couple of decades. And we could well be approaching such a tipping point in energy systems. Because when you look around the world now, the uptake of renewables is happening at a much faster rate than the uh, rollout of new fossil fuel plants and development. So there's a catch-up game for sure, but uh, the, the, the race is now uh, tipping in favor of renewables. They're obviously cleaner. They're also now cheaper, uh, and in many cases, they're more reliable than the, the fossil fuel plants. The key here, of course, is, is dealing with the intermittency of solar and wind, uh, and we're solving that problem too very rapidly with uh, large-scale batteries. We saw that in action in South Australia recently, but also with pumped hydro, 
uh, which has been around for a long, long time. So I think we're approaching a tipping point on the energy system, which which is the biggest sector in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So there is, I think, some, some bright light on the horizon that with the right policy settings and, and, and so on, we actually now have the economics as well as the environmental issues on the side of, of renewables. And what percentage of Australia's emissions come from the agricultural sector? I think it's around 20%, which is close to the global average. Roughly speaking, you have about 35% or so of total emissions coming from the electricity generation sector. But the next two sectors after that are transport and agriculture. So agriculture indeed is a major player in terms of emissions. And, you know, in terms of within agriculture, a big part of that has, is, comes from the cattle and sheep ruminants, basically, who produce methane as part of their normal digestive process. So there's been a huge amounts of money available for researchers to try and resolve that issue with, I must say, limited success so far. Do you think that agriculture is going to be able to be, be a major contributor to reducing our overall emissions? Yeah, I think it can be. There is significant research going on. Well, obviously, we need more of it. Uh, there's also a trend toward dietary change, particularly in the wealthy parts of the world, in the OECD countries. Um, there's also a, a lot of movement, particularly in North America and Europe, toward so-called precision farming, where we use a lot less resources in terms of fresh water and fertilizers and grow the same amount of food or even more food, more crop. Uh, there's a lot of genetic work going on. So there is a lot of research going on in terms of producing as much or more food uh, at vastly reduced amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. So there is some cause for hope that we can uh, indeed keep agriculture profitable and, and flourishing as we have to do to feed a growing population, but at the same time we can significantly get these emissions down. We're not getting a lot of compliance with Paris from the big emitters like America and China and India and so on. Do you think it's reasonable for Australia to be taking on this just more or less as an exemplar because our total contribution globally is so small. Yeah, look, a, a couple of issues here, the issue about a small contribution. Uh, a lot of people put that to me and I respond this way, that uh, my income tax that I pay in Australia is tiny compared to the overall revenue to the Australian government. So if I use that argument, I can write to the ATO and say, I'm not going to pay my income tax. It's too small. It doesn't matter at all for Australian revenue, and I suspect the ATO would not be very happy uh, and would give me a very stern response saying, you better pay your income tax. It'd be worth a try, though. Uh, it's probably worth a try. I think I might get hauled into, into court if I tried that. Anyway, but I think, so, so the same argument is true. Every emission contributes. It's a collective action problem, as we say. Uh, and so Australia, in one way, is small, but in another way, it's in the top 15 countries in terms of overall emissions compared to about 195 to 200 countries around the world. So we are about the same level as Italy, about the same level as France. So, uh, and people are saying, oh, th those countries need to do their bit. So uh, I think we are actually a, a fairly big emitter. So uh, yes, that's, that's an important uh, uh, consideration. This, the second thing I was going to say is I think by moving fast, we're going to gain some advantages. Because when things continue to get worse and people say, I've had enough of the more extreme weather, more bushfires, more heat, stronger tropical cyclones, all this sort of stuff, they're going to say, hey, we actually have to get on top of this problem. Those countries that have actually moved ahead on the new technologies, on the new systems, will be in an advantage because they'll have a huge export market to the rest of the world. So I think we actually have an opportunity here to move fast rather than drag our feet. So... 
that brings me to my next question, really. Is there a, an upside to all this expense that's been putting into stopping burping cows and so on? Do you see that, you know, there's going to be significant upside in terms of production? For example, methane production is basically a waste of energy for, in cattle production, so that's an obvious potential upside of reducing, you know, the bacteria that produce methane in the gut. But what about other upsides for us? Yeah, look, I, I, I think that really is, is a fantastic upside because as dietary preferences change around the world, particularly in Asia, uh, with very large populations and tending more toward a Western diet, uh, again, we would have an enormous export industry in terms of our technology if we could indeed uh, work out how to maintain or increase beef production at the same time, vastly reduce methane. As you said, it's a resource issue here as well. So uh, those are the sort of upsides that, that we can see. Uh, already in Australia, we, we sort of lost out a little bit by not moving faster on solar, sort of China uh, jumped on us a little bit, but actually a lot of the Chinese solar is using Australian technologies and so on. So we actually have a record of being a very innovative society. So this gives us a chance, uh, both in the agriculture sector, but more broadly in the emission reduction sector, uh, to play a prominent role in terms of developing industries that really help us solve this huge challenge and at the same time help maintain us at the forefront of technological development. So is there a sort of make or break point for Australian agriculture where, you know, if we don't get this sorted out, it's going to be very hard to retrieve the situation? I think the make or break point is going to come more in what happens to the climate system because uh, up to a point and at certain rates, we've proven to be pretty adaptable to climate change, but there's limits to how much we can adapt. And, and the real concern is that when you look at the climate system, in the past, it hasn't behaved as a nice, what we call linear system. It sometimes shows some really rapid, abrupt changes. It shows some tipping points. Uh, and if those start to occur uh, by mid-century or later, it's going to be hard for anybody to adapt. So I think it really brings up this issue of limits to, to adaptation. And that needs to be talked about a lot more. And I think that needs to be an argument that we put forward to intensify our efforts to get greenhouse gas emissions down as fast as possible. And the argument there is to actually give ourselves a chance to keep adapting as, as we'll need to do. So we're going to talk to Professor Mark Howden in detail about adaptation. But from your perspective, let's call plan A the emissions control and let's call B an acceptance that, OK, we need a backup plan. Do you think we've put enough resources into the plan B compared to the plan A? I guess your belief would be we haven't put enough resources into either. But what about plan A versus plan B? Again, I think it's sort of a false dichotomy. You've, you've got to do both. And the reason I say that is, is because there are limits to adaptation. Uh, and if you don't get plan A right, you can do plan B as well as you possibly can, and it still won't be enough. On the other hand, even if you do plan A well, we are already, we're already seeing climate change now, the impacts of it at a one-degree temperature rise. We already have several decades of, of rising temperatures, changing water cycles, already in the pipeline from emissions that have already occurred. So we have to have plan B. There's no doubt we have to really emphasize the fact that we, we are in a period of rapidly changing climate no matter what we do, uh, and we need to adapt to that. But if we only think we're going to adapt to anything that comes our way, we're fooling ourselves because we're going to hit levels of climate change later this century. If we don't get emissions down, they're going to be really, really hard, if not impossible, to adapt to.
So if you became Prime Minister tomorrow, um, what would be your top priorities for solving this issue? Well, my number one priority would be to really get our emissions down uh, as rapidly as we can and do that in a way that's going to benefit us uh, in other ways, in terms of so, uh, social benefits, uh, employment benefits, uh, in terms of economic benefits. So I would, I would first of all, really ramp up our, our our Paris commitment. Our Paris commitment is far too weak. I would go for something like a 50 to 55 percent reduction overall in emissions by 2030, uh, and I would hit the electricity sector for a 60 to 65 percent emission reduction. You can do that. You but, can, but is that is that achievable without completely crucifying power prices and and making industry and so on just completely uncompetitive? I mean, that sounds easy to say that, but the arguments from the average. Uh, very urbanised citizen of Australia is, he can hardly afford power now. But well, actually, know, if that happens, yeah. isn't he going to be in trouble? No, it's going to work the opposite, Chris. It's going to drop electricity prices because renewables are now cheaper uh, than fossil fuels. So it's going to have benefits that way too. Uh, there's actually proof of that, and the proof is, is here in Canberra, uh, which is a city now over 400,000. Uh, we decided, uh, the ACT government decided, I think in 2011 or 2012, that we would be 100% renewable by 2020. Well, that's only a bit over a year away, and we're actually on track to do that. All the contracts have been signed for solar and wind. We still have some of the lowest electricity prices in Australia. So the idea that going renewable is going to raise electricity prices is a furphy. Uh, the, the evidence is out there that that's not the case. The other point I would make is you can roll out these new technologies very fast. Uh, you can roll out industrial-scale solar uh, in a year or a year and a half, wind too. So it's absolutely feasible by 2030 to draw the bulk of our electricity from renewable sources and at the same time provide more employment for Australians and at the same time uh, keep electricity prices, uh, probably even drop electricity prices compared to what they are today. So it's a win-win-win situation. I think the only thing that stands in our way are, are ideology, politics and, and vested interests. So, but how far out are we talking? I mean, I've sat in a power broker, you know, uh, rooms in Sydney and listened to them bidding for power. Now, you can buy coal-fired power for, you know, 30-odd dollars a megawatt. Um, and, that, and yet if you start buying power generated from solar or from wind, you're looking 70, 80, 100. And if you look at South Australia, their average cost of power down there would be nearly 10 times some other states. So... You know, at the moment, that is definitely not the case. Well, you know, How confident are you that we're going to get there quickly? I'm very confident. Energy experts tell me that basically what's happening when you see a 30 or $40 a tonne price from coal, that's from an old coal-fired power station that's already been paid off so they can afford to undercut what the actual cost of generating that electricity is. If you replace, the real critical issue is over the next decade, we've got to replace a lot of aging old coal-fired power stations. If you replace them with coal, that is more expensive than renewables. That's the key to the uh, equation here, is that we've got to roll out a lot more electricity generation capacity over the next 10 or 20 years. The question is, where do we go? And all the arguments are stacking heavily in favour of renewables vis-à-vis -vis fossil fuels. And what about in agriculture? You know, our, our um, emissions there on our, our inputs come a lot of fertilisers, are big emitters of, uh, of carbon. Um, of course, we've got the cattle issue. What do you think the effect will be on agri costs of agricultural production? Will they get cheaper? Well, I think we can make them cheaper. And one of the things that uh, in, in um, 
intensive cropping yeah, that's important, of course, is use of water and use of fertilizers, uh, mainly nitrogen and phosphorus. And there are new technologies coming on that can grow the same amount of uh, plant material or even more at much less use of water, much less use uh, of fertilizers through, um, through high, high precision agriculture and so on. So here, again, we have technologies that can help us uh, continue to produce the food we need to produce, but at much less uh, use of resource. And this is the way we've got to go in the future. Are you 100% confident we're going to get there? I'm not 100% confident. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit uh, older, I think, than the new generation's coming, but I love their uh, enthusiasm and optimism. We actually need this. The point I would make here as, as an Earth system scientist is that the Earth as a whole ha- actually has its own tipping points at the whole level of the planet. What you don't want to do is cross one of those that's going to take you on what we sometimes call a hothouse Earth pathway, a pathway toward a four or five degree hotter earth and that's going to be really really tough for humans to live in and that's probably not a linear change in other words you just you you may hit a tipping point where if you go over it you're not going to stop the planet at two and a half or three or three and a half degrees it's through intrinsic feedbacks it's going to go to a hotter earth so i think that is really the key is that we want to avoid crossing such a, a tipping point and the obvious question is where is that tipping point Uh, We don't know for sure. We need more research on that. My best guess, uh, based on my understanding of the Earth system, is that probably uh, if we keep temperature rise below a degree and a half, we're unlikely to cross the tipping point. If it goes to three, we are likely to cross the tipping point. In between, that's the critical area. If we cross that, under the Darwinian survival of the fittest theory, if we cross that point, is Sir David Attenborough right? Will that be the end of humankind? That's a really, really fascinating question. I've seen a few scientists uh, venture a a comment or two on that. One of them said, well, if we actually do go on that pretty drastic uh, hot pathway, human population carrying capacity may be down to about a billion. Not extinction, but certainly a collapse of the 7.6 billion uh, civilization we've got today. So it's going to be a pretty nasty future. Uh, If you look at it from an evolutionary point of view, the organisms that really do well in, in in a hothouse are, are uh, many types of insects, bacteria, uh, but large mammals don't do it all well in a, in a five-degree hotter world. Uh, so a lot of other species would be uh, knocked back in population as well as, as Homo sapiens in that sort of scenario. Professor Will Steffens, thank you so much for being our AgriMinder today and bringing us the benefit of your scholarship uh, in this debate. And let's hope we get it right then. Thanks, Chris. My pleasure. In part two, we'll speak to one of the voices of future food production in Australia, Anika Molesworth. Our future world is definitely moving from the baby boomers and into the hands of the next generation. And indeed, they are in many ways the hope of the side in agriculture as we strive for food security in a very different world that we've been looking at in these series of AgriMinders. As I meet with this group, I'm constantly inspired and indeed in awe of where they are compared to where I was when I graduated in the 1970s, particularly in the areas of both production science and sustainability. Someone whose passion and intuitive optimism has particularly inspired me is 2015 Young Farmer of the Year, Anika Molesworth, who hails from Broken Hill in New South Wales. Anika was also the 2017 New South Wales finalist for Young Australian of the Year, 
and also received the Young Achiever Award in that year for Environment and Sustainability. She's a co-founder of the think tank Climate Wise Agriculture, a group of young people focused on producing agricultural production in a world of climate change, as well as working on her own family farm in far west New South Wales. And on top of all that, she's currently completing her PhD studies on sustainable food production in Southeast Asia. Welcome to AgriMinders, Anika. Thanks so much for having me on. Anika, climate science has been a much fraught science and I must say it's been frustrating to me because the normal principles of scientific analysis which are looking at the problem, coming up with a hypothesis, doing a trial, working out what the results and the conclusions are and then peer reviewing it and ending up with repeatability of that trial haven't been applied to this. In many cases, people have just come up with a hypothesis and then junked anybody who disagreed, and that's worked from both directions. Why has climate science been such a fraught science? Well, the science is not out on climate change. It is definitely saying that burning uh, fossil fuels, producing carbon dioxide, releasing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere destabilises the climate, and that then impacts people and ecosystems. For some reason, there has been a debate within the general public whether the climate science is is real or not, and this has been egged on by media, politicians, vested interests, and it hasn't done anyone any good. Do you think it's been whether it's been real or whether it's been caused by man has been the debate. We've, we've talked about the Anthropocene age and the word Anthropocene comes from anthro meaning man and Cene meaning new. So it's the new age of man, which started since the Industrial Revolution. I don't think anyone in their right mind would disagree that the climate is changing. The question is, though, is it something we're going to be able to do something about? I think we can definitely do something about it. We're causing these changes. We know what has caused these changes. And so if we have the common sense, we definitely have the technology available. Do we have the courage and the political will is the next question. And if we do have that, then we can absolutely do something about it. So Darwinian theory you know, says survival of the fittest. So what, what that's based on is that if you look back through geological ages those creatures, animals, plants, fish, whatever, that have been able to adapt to whatever nature has doled up to them by way of climate or temperature or whatever, have survived. And those that haven't have failed. Nowhere in that have has the definition of fitness actually been approached or attacked. In every case, the survivability has been determined about adaptation, not changing what fitness means. What we're trying to do here is actually reverse Darwinian theory and saying, well, we can't really adapt to this. We've got to sort of change fitness. That's a dangerous step, is it not? I think we need to do both. We need to adapt to the changes already put in place, but then some species can't adapt as quickly as the changes are occurring. We have some species on our family's farm out at Broken Hill, a bearded dragon species, which we're now finding desiccated dead in our paddocks because it is too hot and dry for a creature that has evolved over millennia to survive in the harshest of conditions. So that is really troubling to me 
because we are seeing such a rapid loss of species in such a short period of time because the changes are occurring so quickly. You've had a very interesting career in this whole climate science thing because, you know, you graduated from school some 12 years ago. What have you done since then? So I moved out to my family's property out at Broken Hill. Uh, We have 10,000 acres out there where we run African sheep and goats, and it's a gorgeous part of the country. These are Dorpers, are they? Dorpers, that's right. So my family purchased our Outback Sheep Station in the year 2000, which was the start of the decade-long millennium drought. We bought this property, we fell in love with it, had these grand ideas of what we were going to do, this new lifestyle on this farm. And we literally ran into 10 years of little to no rainfall. And that's a pretty steep learning curve. And that really set me on a trajectory to learn about climate cycles and climate changes. I'd fallen in love with this place and the projections are it was going to become hotter and drier. It was going to experience more frequent and intense droughts and dust storms. What was the the future for me, for someone who wants to take on the family farm? And I think a drought is best described as a slow-moving thief. It first takes your rainfall, then it takes your grass, your sheep, and finally it takes your hope because you don't know when it's going to end. And you really see the impacts of a drought in so many aspects of the farming system. It's, it's impacting your natural resources, your water, your vegetation, that then impacts your farming business, the livestock, the crops. Farmers then move away, search for off-farm income, shops in towns close, and you feel this real toll on a rural community that flows on to higher food prices, lower food quality. It affects every aspect of society. And that's what's really driven me to pursue a career in this area because it is so incredibly important It affects everyone on this planet and everyone yet to come, and we need to do something about it now. And you had a couple of thousand farmers who actually sponsored you to go to the Paris Climate Change Conference. Tell us about that. What what an experience. Yeah, so about two years ago, a group of farmers said, "Let's, let's get together. We had a weekend together in the Blue Mountains saying, you know, what, what's the future looking like? You know, we are coming up against these challenges, these big challenges. We're feeling isolated. We're feeling like our voice is not being heard, that action is not being taken in the timely manner that needs to be. And that was the start of a group called Farmers for Climate Action. One of the first things the group did was to have a crowdfunding campaign to send two young farmers to COP21 the Paris Climate Talks. I was incredibly lucky to be one of those people who went. And it was amazing to be part of the the Climate Change Conference because it is such a huge event. It was hard for me to get my mind around it, you know, the scale of it. You could walk for days, it felt like. And there were people and organisations from all sectors, from all different walks of life there, And they were actively working on the solutions, what we were going to do about climate change, how we were going to adapt, how we're going to mitigate further pollution, reduce emissions. And that was incredibly uplifting. 
And at the end of the Paris conference, I flew off and I had a layover in Singapore, opened up my computer and there was the news that the Paris Agreement had been signed, that all but two countries in the world had signed on to the Paris Agreement. We were going to do something about climate change. And I actually had tears well up in my eyes because I thought, wow, we have come together. We can do something about this. I think that must have been a fantastic feeling for you. In a sense, though, it comes out of a conference where you're living in a a little sort of capsule of people with the same motivation. And as soon as you take that capsule away and all those people do go back out to their political masters and all the cynics and, you know, the people that people elect for different reasons, suddenly things start to fall to pieces and you end up that, you know, America falls off and then China falls off and then India might fall off. And then and in the end, you find you've just got odd countries like Australia still left in it. Now, if you actually look at Australia contributes about 1.8% of 3%, which is the total amount of CO2 gases in the atmosphere. So even if we got rid of all of our greenhouse gases, on our own, our, the difference we're going to make is less than 0.08 of a degree. Now, I understand that it all adds up together, but without all those other countries... Um, And when you saw those other countries falling away, while the heart in you is saying, we've got to keep going, we've got to be an exemplar to the rest of the world, and hopefully they'll jump back on the wagon again. If they don't, in the Fed Income Department, we end up crucifying our own country with absolutely no chance of making any difference at all. Did that worry you? The excuse that is used that Australia is such a small emitter, you know, what's the point? It's like saying why vote one person doesn't matter. It does incredibly matter and we all have to play our role and Australians are the highest emitter per capita. So we absolutely are responsible for the pollution that is going up there, the effects that are being felt around the world within Australia also. I think being, yes, I guess in that silo of COP21 Um, of people working in this space. It is incredibly energising and motivating. And at that time, I thought, it doesn't even matter if the Paris Agreement doesn't get signed because there are so many incredible people and organisations already making such great progress. And maybe this is something that has to start from the ground, that there is this groundswell, which there absolutely is. And the politicians they will join. They will jump on the bandwagon. I have no doubt about that because there is this increasing vocalness about climate action of what needs to happen. And we can see that in the farming community today. Farmers have typically been referred to as conservative people, anti-climate science, all of this, and that is not the case whatsoever. And that's why a lot of people are now reading in the paper that Farmers are, you know, disappointed, fed up with traditional political parties who say they represent them and are saying, you know, we don't have to do anything about climate change. Because if you're conspicuous in saying that you are concerned about the impacts of the drought, that we need to do something about that, then you're incredibly conspicuously absent when you're not talking about climate change and what needs to be done there. If you're addressing the symptoms, drought, 
you need to be addressing the causes, which is the, the burning of fossil fuels, the, the pollution in our atmosphere. So, Anika, you were talking about the, the dramatic effects potentially of climate change. For the ordinary punter in the street who is, really has very little control over his future, he's in the hands of his political masters largely, what, what, what effects are they going to see? What do you think that if we don't actually somehow resolve this problem that they're going to actually see in their day-to-day lives, which is going to make a big difference to them? Do you remember when the typhoon, and I can't remember what the name of the typhoon, came over Queensland and bananas went up to $14.50 a kilogram? They are the kind of effects. It impacts the food that people are eating. Higher prices, lower quality, less availability to food. So food security is a big issue. It also affects where people live, livelihoods. It affects people in all different components of their daily lives. Uh, From a farming perspective, and, you know, that's the space that I'm operating in, is how does it impact farming communities and people living in rural Australia? Well, we're seeing young people migrating to urban environments because agriculture is difficult. Throw climate change on the plate and it becomes really difficult. Do you see a future for your farm at Broken Hill if, you know, in in 50 years' time? I do because I'm optimistic that we're going to do something about climate change. If you looked at the Paris Agreement, the potential of cost of that globally is trillions of dollars, you know, a huge amount of money, which doesn't leave much for adapting to a plan B if that doesn't work. So in a sense... Um, the Paris sort of targets put all of our eggs from a financial perspective for most countries in the one basket. Given that we don't have unlimited resource, do you think that we've we're, it's too high risk to put all our eggs in that basket? Because what happens if, despite all of that, um, number one, we don't achieve it. Number two, actually we find out it was due to solar flares and not due to insulation effect of CO2. Um, number three, too many countries drop out if any of those things happen, let's say there's only a 5% chance that we actually don't achieve keeping global temperatures below an increase of two degrees, do we just say, well, that's the end of the world, see you later, fellas, we're out of here? Or do you think we should have a plan B? And and how do we actually reserve enough money to, to implement a plan B? So you're talking about the economic cost of reducing emissions being part of the Paris Agreement the economic costs of not reducing emissions, of not being part of a global effort to combat climate change is far, far greater. No, I agree with that. But what I'm saying is, let's say the other side of the equation is we say, look, we're not going to do anything about reversing carbon emissions. It's going to happen. It's going to be impossible to get those countries on board. So let's instead spend the 3 or $5 trillion dollars on helping people adapt to it, pipe all the water from the Ord down to the bottom of Western Australia, regardless of cost, um, pipe the Burdekin water, move the farmers who live in the Sunraysia, pay for them to move to where the water's going to be. You know, use the money to adapt because that's at least gives a certainty of a future. Whereas if we use all the money to throw at trying to stop something that we don't even know if we're going to stop and we fail, we've got no backstop. 
I think one of the big problems is that we're talking about addressing the symptoms and not the causes. We absolutely have to be addressing the causes. We absolutely have to be mitigating emissions. And the technologies are out there and they're available. They're affordable today. They're cheaper than what we're currently doing. They make more sense than what we're currently doing. So we absolutely have to do that. Unfortunately, we have done damage to the climate system. We have destabilised it. So we're going to have to adapt to the changes that have already been put in place. People are going to move. There are going to be changes to agricultural lands, to industries, and we need to be able to transition these people to a new source of livelihood. And that's going to be terribly difficult. It will probably be quite costly. But if we continue emitting uh, in the rate that we are doing, if we continue creeping closer to these irreversible tipping points, you know, that we are so close to getting to, then it is it is a domino effect and becomes more and more difficult to slow it down, to change the direction. So we have this incredibly narrow window now. We are the, the first generation to fully understand what climate change is and how we are contributing to it. And we are the, going to be the last generation to do something about it. So we have this narrow window that we have to reduce the pollution and adapt. If you're a scientist in Australia today, a research scientist, money is really hard to get hold of for grants and so on. In fact, they seem to spend half their time applying for money to do stuff rather than actually doing it, which is such a waste for those. They're such brainiacs, these people. I guess my question is that you've got scientists who are sitting there saying, I need to live, so therefore whatever the low-hanging fruit is, that's what I'm going to go for. And there's any amount of political money available for uh, anti-emission type work, you know, uh, stopping burping cows, um, carbon sequestration, any projects in that line, there's money available. So if you become a scientist, that's what you'd go for because that's where you get your research money. Whereas there's not money available that I've seen in any great abundance for adapting to what is possibly inevitable climate change. Does that not worry you? There are organisations and people working on both, yes, the mitigation, the burping cows, the carbon sequestration. There are people working in the adaptation space too. Like what? Uh, So working in crop breeding for more drought-tolerant wheat, more saline-tolerant grains, livestock that can cope with greater temperatures. There is a lot of work being done there, but there needs to be more investment in this space. There needs to be greater capacity for those researchers to do longer-term trials, to do more research, to be better connected to people on the land, the farmers, Mm. so they can have this two-way flow of information because farmers are some of the best researchers themselves because Mm. they're trialling different things every day, every season, every year. So we need to be able to connect them to the researchers and then work together, so break down these siloed walls that people are operating in. How do you think Australian farmers can best prepare themselves for what might be inevitable climate change? It's multi-pronged how to be sustainable and resilient. These changes are happening so rapidly, season after season, year after year. Records are being smashed in high temperatures and low rainfalls, and farmers, they 
really are at the coalface of these changes. So to get them best prepared for the changes so they can adapt, so they are most resilient. So we do have vibrant rural communities well into the future. They need to be connected to the researchers. They need to have the best available information, technology, so they can make well-informed decisions. They need to have good education platforms. They need to be connected to other farmers, to other sectors, people within their industry. And we need advanced telecommunications and ways that people can operate their farming businesses with best capacity because these challenges, they, they are great and they impact so many different aspects of water, of livestock, of feed, and it is difficult to get one's head around. And perhaps sometimes it's easier to go, oh, okay, maybe it's not happening, um, maybe we're just in a cycle and we'll continue business as usual. But this is why we're seeing this this increasing, you know, vocalisation from the farming community is because it's getting too difficult to continue business as usual. Back's against the wall now. People are selling up. Young people are conscious about the challenges in this space and not sure if they're wanting to get involved. Are you confident that all our world leaders are going to come on board? Inevitably, we're going to have some world leaders that are visionary, are transformational. We're going to get some that are completely hopeless. And we don't have a global government and we won't have a global government. Uh, you know, anything we've tried to do with that has been impotent and hopeless. Are you confident that we'll get everyone back on board, that they will come to, in the, around in the end because they're not there yet? They're not there yet. I do have faith that we will get there though. And I think when we do have visionary leaders, hopefully people do champion them and say, you know, this is right. This is the direction we want to head. This is the the trajectory that we want to go. And others then step up and hopefully it sort of starts that flow on effect, I guess. And if you had to bet your farm on it, what percentage chance do you think we've got of actually keeping our degree increase to less than two degrees? 100% we'll do it. So you're really sure that we're going to get there? I'm really sure. And so you're really excited about the future for yourself as a potential farmer in Broken Hill and your family in the future and so on? It's going to be difficult for sure. We've got these huge challenges coming our way um, for our farmers like myself in the arid zone of Australia those challenges are a lot closer than other parts of Australia. But we will absolutely do it because we've got no other option. Well, Anika, you're an inspiration, I think, to your generation in how you're engaged with, with a problem. You're, you're fighting effectively for a do-or-die situation in your view. Uh, and I, we admire you for that. We salute you and thank you for being our agriminder today. Thanks so much for having me. So we've talked about where we've been and what the issues are, and we've certainly heard where we want to go and where we think we'd like to go. But now let's talk about what's our plan B if all else fails. And we'll be joined by Professor Mark Howden, who was actually part of the first team who won the Nobel Peace Prize for their work on how we adapt to climate change. Join me in our next episode of AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. 
Agriminders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Agriminders on Apple Podcasts.